0: This morning we're continuing our sermon series, The Servant King, in the book of Mark, and our passage for this morning is Mark 1, verses 21 through 45. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, "'What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth?' Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee." So that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter.
1: Well, hey, good morning. Uh, My name's Nate. Good to be with you. I haven't met you yet. Um, This week, uh, in preparation for this sermon, I was reading a commentary, and I haven't been able to get this one phrase uh, that William Lane wrote about this section. He said this, The disturbance of men by God has begun. The disturbance of men by God has begun. And here's why. This entire section, what was just read, is really about one thing. And we'll see it throughout the first, particularly the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel. It's this, the authority of Jesus. We are confronted today in this passage with the greatness of Jesus' authority and the goodness of Jesus' authority. And it comes at us. And if we really see it, there's gonna be a moment in this message where you're gonna be disturbed. But it's the only way you encounter him. And it's actually what we need. And so three things today, we're gonna see the greatness of his authority, the goodness of his authority, and then we got to be personally confronted by it. So let me pray, and we'll, we'll jump in. So, Father, we uh, ask you today to graciously, lovingly, truthfully help us to encounter your Son with who he is. And would it change us, would it shape us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well the greatness of his authority. Um, Look at verses 21 and 22. Uh, This is what Mark writes. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. There's the scribes. They were people that day that studied the scriptures, but they also particularly studied the oral law. It was this other side writing that interpreted the scriptures. And so the scribes were well known. If you wanted to know what the Bible taught, you'd go to the scribes. And the scribes, what they would do is they would quote others. Jesus teaches differently than the scribes. And here's how. He doesn't quote others uh, in, in a couple other Gospels, there are some moments where we see this. In Matthew's the Gospel, when you see the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will quote a passage of Scripture, like something like this. He'll say, you shall not commit adultery. Or he'll say this, you shall not murder. And then he'll say this, but I say to you. Or, for example, in Luke's Gospel... Jesus' first sermon, his inaugural sermon, his inaugural address, he quotes from Isaiah. And he gets done reading this portion of Isaiah, and he says this, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Everything I just just read, that Isaiah was coming, it's happening now. Jesus teaches with this authority and everyone recognizes it but we also see Jesus authority in what continues to happen in this situation look at verses 23 and 24 and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out what have you to do with us jesus of nazareth have you come to destroy us i know who you are the holy one Of God. You know, um, I gotta pause here for a moment because we're talking about personal spiritual forces here. We're talking about a demon in the Gospel of Mark, and this is Madison, Wisconsin. (laughs) And I'm guessing that there are either one or two places you find yourself this morning. Uh, Some of you, you grew up in a religious setting where personal spiritual forces of evil were real and were frequently oftentimes perhaps all the time the reason behind all the problems in the world others of you you grew up in a non-religious background where personal spiritual forces of evil our experiences maybe that ancient people had but in our day in our day we've progressed and we understand that those things are just in the past well, several years ago in a message by Keller, he said something about this that was extremely helpful, whether you are on either of those spectrums. He said this The biblical understanding of demons is some of the most complex, most nuanced view of evil, of reality that exists out there. In other words, Keller was saying that it's some of the most complex understandings of evil out there is actually in the scriptures. And the reason for this was because of summary statements, like in verse 34, it says this, Mark says this, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Notice that. There's physical ailments and there's spiritual ailments. Um, In Matthew's gospel, there's a similar summary, but it adds a word. It says, it actually has an English word we get our equivalent, the lunatics came out. Now, that's a bad word. We think about that, but that word, the original mean, literally means any kind of insanity or seizure or irrational behavior. And notice that for a moment. The Scriptures are saying that the Bible understands the difference between all of those ailments, physically, mentally, spiritually. They're all there. They're not all in one. A couple hundred years ago, there was a pastor who was preaching on depression and talking about how do you handle it. And he said, there's a, there's sometimes there's a physical reason for depression. We see that with Elijah. You need sleep. You need food. Sometimes it's a moral reason for depression. You need confession and forgiveness. Other times it's mental. You're weary. You need love and support and community. And sometimes it's evil, it's, it has a demonic root, and you need prayer and the word of God. And Keller comments on this, and this is so helpful. He says, Some worldviews are materialistic, and they say, take a pill. Some are psychological, they say talk. Some are religious, say obey, confess your sins. And some are superstitious. But the scriptures are not that reductionistic. In fact, oftentimes these four things are interlocking, they're working together. Don't you understand what's happening here? The scriptures are saying that there are various things that come at us. And you don't need reductionistic views. You need a complex view, and that's what the Scriptures give. So C.S. Lewis, at the beginning of his Screwtape Letters, which is an incredible premise for a book, you should, it's an amazing book to read, but he writes this. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel as an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And they themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now, what's really helpful is as we get into this section, and by the way, Jesus is going to confront a lot of demons, these first eight chapters. That's why we had to take a pause here, because I'll probably say we'll go back to this message and look at that if you have an issue with demons. But... um, this section is helpful because look at how Jesus handles the situation. You'll notice Jesus has just said, excuse me, the, the demon has just identified Jesus as the Holy One of God. And here's the backstory. In that day and age, it was commonly held that if you had a person's name and you said it, it was a way of gaining power. So this demon in this situation He's not making a confession of faith in Jesus. He's trying to overpower Jesus by using his name. But look at how Jesus responds in verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And look at how the demon responds in verse 26. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice. Came out of him. Uh, this is noteworthy. Um, exorcisms were not uncommon in that day, but when an exorcist would come upon something like this, they would say, they would appeal to a greater power. They would say, In the name of this, or in the name of this greater power, I command you get out. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He just says it. Here's what I tell you to do. And the demon obeys because he has to because he's in the presence of a greater power and look at the response in verse 27 of what these people have just seen jesus do in their hearing and they were all amazed so they questioned among themselves saying what is this a new teaching with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him They're in awe. They cannot imagine what they've just seen. They have seen Jesus teach with authority. They have seen Jesus cast out a demon with authority. And they're amazed. They're in awe. But Mark doesn't just stop there with these two areas. He continues. And he shows us Jesus' authority in healing. We see this in the next section where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and there's a summary statement of the whole town kind of coming out with their problems and he heals. But I want to go to the last account of our section, the healing of the man with leprosy, because this is remarkable. You'll see it. Look at verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. You know, leprosy was, uh, is a skin disease. And the main issue is the disfigurement, skin sores, lumps, bumps. It caused disfigurement, sometimes disability. <clears throat> it was one of those diseases that brought great mental anguish. It meant being isolated from your friends, from your family, from your community. And this man comes to Jesus because he's heard what Jesus has done, he's heard the stories. And this man says, If you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus does something absolutely unheard of. He doesn't have to do what he, just do, what he does, but look at verse 41. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Uh, you weren't supposed to do that. You were not supposed to touch a man with leprosy. It made you ceremonially unclean. In that day and age, it was clear, it potentially brought you risk of contacting of, of contracting the disease. But in verse 42, look at what happens. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Jesus touches him, and the cure spreads. And it's not like a couple weeks. It's immediately. He is instantaneously healed. There is only two times in the Old Testament where anyone is healed of leprosy. The rabbis of that day, they said this, it's as difficult to heal the leper as to raise the dead. And Jesus Has just reached out and touched, and it's done. He's healed. This account, if you look at the timetable, it's probably roughly a 24 hour time span. And Jesus, do you see the greatness of his authority, his teaching, his power over personal spiritual forces, and his ability to heal? Everything he does, he is able to do. There, there seems to be no limits. But there's also something underlying here that's really important to point out, and that's the goodness of his authority. Uh, it's interesting. You know. Jesus could have demonstrated his authority in any number of ways. Uh, he could have showed his power. He could have shot a fireball, right? He could have split a rock, But notice how each of these situations, they're all restorative. In Jesus' teaching, what is He doing? When someone has authority in teaching, they are saying what is true. Jesus is revealing what's true about God, what's true about us. Do you realize how, right, false beliefs, how they distort our lives? Jesus in his teaching is restoring. Or think for a moment about the, the, the man who was possessed by an evil spirit. He's liberating someone who's spiritually oppressed. One of the things that's interesting, in the healing of the leper, we get a shot at the motive of Jesus. We just read it but in verse 41 the text says that Jesus was says moved with pity. Now I understand why translators put that term in there but it actually misses something that's in the original language. The original language actually means Jesus was angry. What's he angry at? Let me put it this way. You've probably seen it, right? Um, some of you have been affected by it. You've lost someone to cancer. Or you've lost someone to COVID. And, um, you know, I've seen the beer can that has, a, that has a very explicit word, blank COVID. Or you've seen the explicit that, that says, you know, blank cancer, because there's anger there. So angry at what's been taken. Do you realize right here, Jesus resonates with that sentiment? Jesus is angry at the way this disease has taken the toll on this man. And Jesus restores him physically. And not only physically, you know what's interesting later on in that passage? Jesus says, hey, go to, the, um, go to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. And that was something that was put in there in Leviticus, where you need to go there to basically to verify that you were clean. But that, that meant once that person did that, they were restored back to community. Jesus is not only restoring them physically, he's restoring them socially, To take a step back, what's happening here? Maybe no one gets this better than an um, imagery. It's just C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you're familiar with that series, you know as it starts, the children go into that land of Narnia and it's winter. And it's always winter. And the symbols of winter is that Narnia has fallen under an evil regime. The white witch's snow hides all of the traces of the protagonist, Aslan, or the Emperor Beyond the Scenes presence. And there's a scene where Edmund, who's been captured by the White Witch because of his rebellion, recognizes something. He looks out and he sees the snow is beginning to melt. And there's this line, this, it says, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is the Christ figure. He's the one the Narnians have been waiting for who, is, who would come and rescue them. That there's reason for hope. And here's what this means in the book of Mark as he's writing. Don't you understand? Jesus, the true king, has come. He's, not, he's inaugurating a new kingdom, one that will restore the whole world from its exile because of sin to its beauty and freedom. In other words, Right, we're entering fall, right? Trees are turning colors, leaves are dying. But you know where we're headed, right? After winter, springtime, when it's blooming. If you're seeing those trees, when it just begins to bloom, you see just, it's just the initial thing, and you know what's coming. You know what's coming is full bloom. This is what's happening here. Jesus, the kingdom, Jesus and his kingdom, it's, it's inaugurated, it's coming, The new buds are sprouting. There is new life. It's a snapshot of where he's going to take all things. And there is a buzz about Jesus, is there not? In verse 45, it says this, that that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town because everybody's hearing about how amazing he is. Now, At this point, the reason why I began the sermon talking about that one comment about the, the disruptive nature of Jesus, the disturbing nature of Jesus, is you read this account and you're like, what's so disturbing about that? I mean, this is amazing, right? Well, look what happens in the middle of the story. Jesus... In verse 35 through 39, he pulls away. And he pulls away to pray. So after he's healed so many people in the town. And Peter finds him. And Peter's like, everyone's looking for you. In other words, Peter's saying, what are you doing out here? The town is clamoring for you. You've got a great thing going. And Jesus responds this way. In verse 28, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. In William Lane's commentary, commenting on this section, writes this, in compassion and grace, Jesus extends authentic healing, but it is not primarily for this purpose that he has come. His purpose is not to heal as many people as possible, but to confront humanity with a demand for decision in the perspective of God's absolute claim upon the person. You, you remember when you were young, and uh, your brother or sister, or maybe this is you you know, you would, you would tell your sibling not to do something, you know, and then they would say, uh, you're not my parents. You're not the boss of me, right? You remember that? Or remember when you watched that show where, um, you know, some, some person would do a crime and they would, they would try to get beyond like the county lines, you know, and like they get on the other side and like the sheriff were over here like, oh, you know, you, you have no jurisdiction here or, you know, some international plot, they would go to another part of the world so they can't be, you know, charged. In one way or another, it's this sense of like, I'm in charge of myself. Well, when the king shows up, Jesus, and he's got this authority, it actually means he's in charge. In other words, what got us into the mess, right, was way back when when our forebears said, Sorry, God, I want to live by myself. I'm autonomous. I don't need you. But now the king has returned. And now he's saying, Actually, there is a word for you. We saw it last week. Repent, believe, follow. It's a call. To each one of us. And this is why I said there's a moment where this has to disturb you. Because even this week as I'm studying this passage, there's a moment where you're just like, Jesus, who do you think you are? Right? If you're really listening, I mean, who do you think you are? Because then you're starting to really confront who Jesus is. What are we to do with this? Um, Let me put it this way. We live in a day in which the search for an authority we can trust is so problematic. I was reading Andrew Walker this week, and he mentioned a few things. He he wrote this. like One author notes, this is Andrew Walker, he says, There's child abuse scandals. We see professing Christians in the history who have promoted race-based slavery. We see political scandals. We see videos of police officers abusing their authority. right? Everywhere we look, it's like people in authority, and it's like, what? And honestly, where most of us land, and where most of our culture lands, is simply the notion of simply trusting yourself. Uh, One of the things um, I love about Andrew Walker's piece this last week when I was reading it, he said, but here's the problem with that. If I had acted on every feeling or thought that looked good to me when I was 18, my life would be much worse. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Right? Like, that's like just straight up truth. Um, And this is why Jesus' message to repent, believe, and follow is so radical because in one way or another, it's a call to turn. It's a call to turn. I said this last week, but building your identity on anything other than Jesus. It means, if you're religious, you can't save yourself. Like, not even that. You've got to turn from that. And then you've got to believe. You've got to believe that, that God has done something actually to rescue you. In other words, if you come to Jesus merely as a miracle worker, you haven't actually come to Jesus. That's not why he's come to you. He's come as a king. But listen, this is the thing. Think about it. Everything Jesus does here, it's restorative. And that means if you want to be restored, it means you've got to come under his good rule and reign, and that means trusting him. And listen, throughout Mark's gospel, he is going to show you what this man who has all the authority does. He will lay himself down. He, is, he does not say, you serve me. He comes to serve you through his death and his resurrection. Don't you understand? If you're not, if you're not disturbed, it means you haven't actually been confirmed by Jesus. But it's, it's only in that where you begin to actually see how you can be healed. And if you're a Christian, this this shapes our mission. Isn't it interesting? Peter comes to Jesus, and Peter's like, Jesus, you got a great thing going here. Let's go. Let's do some more exorcisms. Let's do some more healings. Let's do some more good for the world. And Jesus says, actually, why I've come is to preach. My kingdom comes through the gospel word. And that means this, if you're a Christian, to follow Jesus is we ought to be a community who are incredibly compassionate and gracious to all. We ought to be a community that looks out at the world and sees the problems that are out in the world. And we ought to be a part of wanting to see good happen. But primarily... we are called to follow a king whose kingdom advances through his gospel word. And that means we ought to be a community that lives with a gospel intentionality who lovingly shares the gospel, this life, death, and resurrection that does confront but calls people to faith in Christ Let me ask you, how are we doing? One of the things that I love about Redeemer City, one of the reasons why, um, when I'm in the community, why I, honestly, I love to, like it's a, put it this way, when I'm in the community, like, Redeemer City has a good reputation. It really does. It's a privilege to be a pastor here. It really is. Because Redeemer City throughout the years has done really well at honestly caring about the community, meeting needs physically and emotionally and so forth. I mean, this has been from day one. But let me tell you, this is the challenge. To continue to do that, but to live with the primacy of the gospel word moving forward. A couple weeks ago, I got news of the passing of Jonathan um, Sharks and um, a young man who died from a rare form of cancer. And the reason why I got news because he's part of uh, The Ringer. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of sports podcast, and I listen to Bill Simmons a good bit. And um, Jonathan Starks was a, was a member of that, that team. And so Bill Simmons did a podcast an hour-long podcast with him and then about three others that knew Jonathan. And it's remarkable, on this podcast, they talked about memories of him. They talked about his love for the Dallas Mavericks. They even replayed a a scene where um, right when the Mavericks uh, drafted, what's their big guy, Jonathan? I don't know, anyway, their their best player anyway. He got so excited. Like, I mean, they replayed that. But throughout this podcast they talked about his faith and at one point the guy who did the pod, like this guy had a podcast with someone else on that team he said this guy said at one point Jonathan just straight up and he used this word proselytized me <laughs> and then Bill Simmons said and it was, it was seductive in other words, it was appealing on a deeper level. And though none of those people on that podcast, to my knowledge, have come to faith in Christ, all I could think about was he did it. He lived with the faithfulness to the mission with the people around them. Listen, Redeemer City This is where it confronts us, the authority of Jesus, the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. It calls us to follow him in this world where that authority is contested with the message that he reigns, that he has lived, that he has died, and that he has risen, and even now he is ruling. And that only under, coming under his rule can they be healed. Let's pray. Father, we pray uh, now that you would help us to follow your son into this world with that news. Jesus, we thank you that your authority is great And it is good. And we pray that by your grace and through the empowering work of your spirit, you would enable us to be your witnesses. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.